0: okay good morning so it's fantastic uh, to be with uh, you this morning and uh, especially I I did not know about that announcement here this morning so uh, I knew about the decision but yeah so I'm very thankful for that and very thankful to have joined in here with uh, the Rock Church and with God's family and excited to see what God uh, is already doing in Squamish and What is hard is further on for Squamish and further on for the Church of Jesus Christ here in this town. And uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. But um, I'm excited to be here to talk to you on uh, Luke chapter 13, verses 31 to 35 this morning. And... uh, For those of you that are maybe here for the first time, uh, we have been working through the gospel according to Luke for the last year and a half, I believe, and uh, we are making great progress. Glenn uh, has brought us just past halfway now. We've still got a fair bit to go, uh, but it's been amazing to see um, the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ uh, through the eyes of Luke the Physician who is giving us an account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection so that we might have certainty, he says. He writes to his friend and he says so that you may have certainty about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And that is what we are hoping and and trust every time that we preach on uh, a passage out of Luke, that more and more we will gain certainty and grow our our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, last week's message from Glenn, we heard... How Jesus was, of course, still busy preaching and teaching. He was going from village to village and town to town. And he was preaching about what, again, what is, what is the, the favorite thing that Jesus likes to preach and teach on? The kingdom of God. Okay, the kingdom of God. And so last week, Lynn highlighted for us, out of that passage, how Jesus said that, listen, there is only one way in which you can enter the kingdom of God. There is only one way, and it is through the narrow door. There is only one way, it is the narrow door. And it was clear out of last week's message that it is not about how clever you are and how good you are in picking the right door. It is not about what you do, but it is what God has done through you through Jesus as He is the door. He is the door that is then leading to eternal life and leading into the kingdom of God. We also heard very clearly out of last week's message that there is a stern warning that there will be a time where it is going to be too late for many people. That that door will be shut. Many are going to come. They will knock on that door. And Jesus tells them, listen, I do not know where you come from. And that is a clear warning that, listen, it's not, it's not a game. When we have to make these decisions, when we put our faith in God and are confronted with us, it's not a game. But God is so gracious and merciful to us that He provides this way to us, right? Um, If we spoke that message, last week's message, in the culture, you know, we might get many people that push back and say, listen, but this is so harsh, This is extremely narrow. Why does Jesus make it so hard? Why is it such a narrow way? But we need to remember that the God of the Bible is a just God. Together with the fact that the God of the Bible is holy, gracious, merciful, loving, and a forgiving God, He needs to be just. He cannot be all of those other things and not be just. And so, He gives us, in fact, so many opportunities, grace upon grace upon grace, to actually follow Him, to choose Him, because He has chosen us before we could choose Him. He has chosen to reveal Himself through Jesus Christ. And so, in today's passage of Scripture, I want to show you that Jesus shows us now, flowing out of that passage from last week, a picture of God's heart towards His people. What it was from the beginning towards the nation of Israel, but not just towards the nation of Israel, but for all nations. And how it applies to us here today. So before we read, I'm just going to pray for us, and then we're going to read the passage, and then we'll dive in. All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Our Father God... Uh, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word being the truth of God. I thank you for your word being revealed to us through Jesus Christ, made flesh. And so we thank you that we can look upon your word. And Lord, that we can come come humbly before you and ask, uh, come and help us. Father, come and help me. Lord, let these words that I speak today, Lord, let it be your words. Holy Spirit, come and empower these words. And and Father, anything that is not of you, any thoughts, any distractions, I come and pray for your protection over that, over us today as a body. And come and bring us into your fold. Come and help us to listen. And Lord, come and change our hearts. I pray that in Jesus' name, and, and we thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay, Luke 13, verses 31 to 35. It says there, At that very hour, so while Jesus was teaching about the narrow door, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just need to take a drink of water here was a little bit sick this week, so my mouth just running super dry. Before I jump into that text, quickly wanted to uh, just reflect on a bit of my past. Uh, I know that I've shared before here uh, with you guys that, you know, I grew up as the youngest of five children being the baby of the family um, the age difference between me and my oldest brother is 18 years, and the brother that's closest to me—he visited, visited uh, us here in Canada now this past summer. He's four years older than me. Now, um, the two of us mainly grew up with each other. He was—he's my closest uh, sibling, and I know him the best of all of my siblings. And uh, you know, we grew up in difficult circumstances, as I've uh, shared before. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic. Together with that, he had bipolar depression and, and struggled with his health through uh, heart disease. And, and he was smoking a lot and was a diabetic. It was just, uh, yeah, it was really hard for him. And then my mother was diagnosed with schizophrenia. But the the most amazing thing about our family is that still by the grace of God, all five of us were raised in this home, which was very dysfunctional. And, and the love of God was there. It was there. It was it was mainly led through my mother's leading. She was a devoted Christian and still is to this day. And my dad's, well, he struggled. He struggled to follow Jesus with everything that he had. But before he died, he did make his peace with God. But one of the things that I remember about our upbringing is that my father and mother had a specific way in how they disciplined us. Okay, When we were naughty and, and being disrespectful to my mom or, or just mischievous... You know, there was a consequence to it. But there was always a chance for us to apologize. There was always a chance for us to acknowledge what we had done wrong and then face the consequence. If we had not done that, we would most probably just have carried on in doing the, the same things. Now, um, I remember a specific instance where my brother and I, we were actually, you know, just being little stinkers with my mom. I was uh, seven years And my my brother was uh, 11, and it was school holidays, and we were very bored. So we thought it was really funny just to really tease my mom a lot. And we did that through play fighting. And of course, me being the baby, my mother would stand up for me. Because she, in her mind, all the older siblings were always trying to get me. And they were. They were trying to get me. I promise you, it was always like that from the start. Okay, but anyways, so we would play fight because we figured out, hey, mom is taking this very seriously. She, she thinks we're actually fighting and then I would run to her crying, ah, he hit me and then she would come and, and run after my brother and she wants to, you know, spank him with her slipper but he would run away and we're like, ha ah, ah, ha, this is really funny. Okay, and she figured out, oh, this is what you guys are doing and, and so she warned us, she said that one day, listen, when dad gets home, I'm going to tell him you're going to get a big spanking. And so we were like, okay, super scared, waiting for the arrival of dad that evening. And so later that evening, he came back, and he's tired from working the whole day. And so she tells him the story, and he's like, okay, and now we know, okay, this is it. So we walk to the room, and he takes us in, and we know this is it. This is going to be a whipping. And so he gives us the opportunity to confess and say what we did wrong. So we acknowledged it, and he's like, okay, so your mom wants to see you spanked. And he said, so this is what's going to happen. And he took off his belt, and he said, I'm going to be hitting my hand. And you have to scream as if I'm I'm spanking you. But listen up. This is the very, very last time you will do this. Because from here, you go out, you're going to act as if you got a spanking. But I promise you, if you do this again, you will get a proper spanking. And so the two of us, we were like, hmm, okay, this sounds like a good deal. And so we did it. He was hitting his hand, and we, we faked it, Wah! crying, and he closed the door, and we were left to, to finish our crying in the room, and then came out, and mom was, she was like, okay, yeah, dad sorted them out. And so she was happy. But, of course, she didn't really, it wasn't as if she was delighting that, but she wanted to see it, you know, us set straight. Now, Looking back at that, that's not the greatest example of uh, how a parent should maybe discipline. It's not the greatest example to maintain unity between a husband and a wife. Um, but you know what? Of all the things that I remember of my dad when it comes to disciplining me, that's, one of the, that's the, the greatest memory because it revealed to me just how much mercy and grace he had for us. And his desire, and I know my mom's desire as well, was not to punish us, but it was to correct us, to help us. And it was good. Now, I share that with you this morning because I believe in this morning's message and in this passage, God wants to reveal to us his heart to us. Um, Because in last week's message, yes, Jesus is the narrow door. He's the only door. There's going to be a time where there's going to be a consequence for people that do not choose to follow him. But... His heart is for us to come to know Him, to know His kindness, His grace, His mercy. The Bible says in Romans 2 verse 4 that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It shouldn't be the fear of ending up in hell. And it shouldn't be that we just want to be safe one day in heaven. It's because we actually want Him. That's what that should lead us to, to want to choose Him. And so that's what, I, what I'm going to lead us into so this morning's message title is maybe a little bit odd. Uh, my wife didn't like it. I decided to stick with it. It's called The Hen Like God. The Hen Like God. And the message outline sounds like something out of a Chronicles of Narnia series. It is the fox, the hen, and the desolate house. So I hope you guys are ready for this. Okay. Let's go for it. The first one, the fox. Verses 31 to 33. It says there, After Jesus was traveling through the towns and villages, teaching and preaching about him being the narrow door, the only way to be uh, saved, he's still carrying on and he's pressing on towards Jerusalem. Now, super interesting how some Pharisees come and they supposedly are concerned about Jesus' safety. The question is, were they really concerned with his safety? It's not entirely clear. It it could be be that there were some Pharisees that were concerned for him. Uh, We do know that there were some Pharisees that apparently did follow Jesus in the end. But if we look at the Gospel of Luke or the other Gospels, we see that the Pharisees are mostly and mainly they are Jesus' main opponents. The religious people, they are the ones that oppose him the most. They are the ones that when Jesus comes out and proclaims that Messiah has arrived, when he reads the scroll of Isaiah and he says, well, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me. They are the ones who want to basically throw him off of a cliff. Did Herod want to kill Jesus? Could be. We know that Herod the Great, his father, he wanted to kill Jesus when Jesus was still a baby. This is Herod Antipas, who was the ruler there in Galilee, put there in place by the Roman Empire. And we know that he killed Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, in Luke 9. And there it says that Herod was actually interested in seeing Jesus. And we see in Luke 23 that Herod was delighted to see Jesus because he wanted to see what? What did he want to see Jesus do? Miracles. Do another trick, Jesus. So the question, you know, of whether or not they were really concerned with Jesus or whether Herod was trying to kill Jesus, you know, it's still interesting. Jesus answers the question as if it is true. And he responds in a specific way. He calls Herod a fox. Now, I I read up a little bit about, about the Arabian red fox. That's most probably the fox that Jesus is referring to here. And it's most common in the Middle East and in Israel. And what's interesting about this fox is it's got very big ears. Like, they look weird. I I forgot to put a picture up there, but they've got big ears. And the reason for that is is that they can hear very very precisely where rodents, like rats, where they're hiding, and so that they can pounce on them. But together with that, these foxes were renowned for destruction of vineyards and plundering grapes. And so that's what they were known for. And so when Jesus calls him a fox, that is a political statement. That is a statement that goes out through the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were functioning as his ears. The the Pharisees were there and they were listening and watching. And they were going to go back to Herod and tell him this. Because Jesus was comparing him to this fox. Because Herod, he was the one who was in the end reaping the benefits of the Roman Empire, who was ruling over Israel. Herod was basically just being a puppet, ruling but not looking after God's people, not loving God. And so Jesus' message back to Herod is very clear. What does he tell Herod? He says, listen, go tell that fox, this is what I'm doing. I'm casting out demons. I'm healing the sick. I'm raising the dead. And I will carry on doing this until I finish my course in Jerusalem. What is he actually telling him? What do we know about the person that would come that would heal the sick, that would raise the dead, who would cast out demons? He's the Savior. He is the Messiah. So when he tells the Pharisees to go back to the fox, he basically says, Messiah is here. He's going to carry on with his mission until it is complete. Yeah, he was actually the one who was the true king, the true king of the Jews, the true king of Israel. Now, the question is, what does that mean for us? What, how could, what can we take from that? There is a fox who is at work on this earth in the lives of people. And he is the one who wants to distract us in the same way the Pharisees and Herod wanted to distract Jesus off of his mission. Jesus refers to this fox as Satan. He calls him the father of the lie in John 8.44. And he says that his purpose is only to kill, steal, and to destroy, as opposed to Jesus who came to bring life and so that we can have it to the full. Now, the question is, how does he do that? And I quickly want to share with you three ways in which I believe the enemy, the fox that's trying to distract us from God's plan in our lives, how he does that. The first one I'm going to put up there is fear of death. We see that Apparently, Herod wants to kill Jesus, so they try and scare Jesus to say, hey, listen, if you lose your life, this is, that's the end. You know, in the same way, the enemy wants to scare us with and, and create fear within us, not just necessarily about death, about dying, but about the death of dying to ourself, the death that needs to face all of us if we truly live for Jesus. Because listen to this. Jesus says in Luke 9, verse 23 to 24, that if anyone would come after him, you have to deny yourself, deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You know, I, I grew up as a Christian, made that decision when I was maybe four or five with my mother who was reading the Bible to me. But growing up as a teenager and and with that Christian culture and upbringing and into university, I would go to school or uh, church regularly, confess my sins, pray a little bit, read the Bible. But you know what? I knew in my heart of hearts that I had not fully died to myself. I had not fully given my life to Jesus. Because Jesus was not on my lips, he was not on my heart, he was not on my mind the whole time. He did not he did not control my life. Because I had a fear, I had a fear of doing that. I feared giving him full control and the enemy had kept me in that place until the age of 23 when I finally made the decision to say no. I need to give my whole life. I need to repent of my sins and follow Jesus with everything that I had. Second way that the enemy wants to create or distract us is by creating the fear of man. You know, together with the fear of surrendering my whole life to Jesus came the fear of what other kids would think, what my fellow friends would do, losing them. It is the same thing that the Pharisees, the same strategy. They tried to create a fear within Jesus about Herod. They were appealing to Herod. He was the king or the ruler there. And so maybe Jesus would be scared about Herod because Herod could actually kill him. And so Satan does the same thing with us. He tries to create a fear within us for what people might think or what people might say when we start talking about Jesus or sharing about what Jesus had done in our lives. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So it comes with a promise that if we're in that situation where maybe there's an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Those of us that trust in the Lord, we will be safe. He will carry us in those circumstances. He is the one that will follow through if we are bold in that way. But if we fear man, if we fear what people are going to think, that will forever be a snare to you. And so that is a big strategy from the enemy and how he keeps us in that place of fearing man. And then a last one I want to submit to you is that he cripples us by a fear for God and in the following way. In Genesis 3, verse 10, we see this happen at the fall when Adam and Eve, our great, 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 great grandfather and mother, when they rebelled against God and chose to live life according to their way, what happened? God was seeking after them and he finds Adam in Genesis 3 verse 10 and Adam responds and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Satan wants to create fear in us about God and for God and that His desire, He creates the idea within us that God's desire is to only punish us and get us. So in other words, you just always want to run from God. But 1 John 4, verse 15 to 18 says the following. Listen to this very carefully. It says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. And he and God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Listen to that. The love of God has been perfected in us through acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and we have such confidence in the day of judgment. You've got nothing to fear. You have confidence that you're going to be okay. You're going to be, he's going to say, Yeah, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because as he is also, we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. What an encouraging promise. You have nothing to fear. No fear of God. We know the Bible teaches the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but that is talking about acknowledging he is God, acknowledging and saying, You are Lord and Savior, you are the one who is in control. But he's not the one who's always trying just to punish you and get you. But if we look at those three fears, perhaps, and the three ways in which Satan tries to cripple us, the question is still, okay, we know that. But what, what is the main solution? What do we see what Jesus does with Herod and the Pharisees? Well, Jesus refers to Herod as a fox, basically rebuking him, because Jesus knows he's got the authority, he's the one who's in control. And then he talks about how he's going to carry on with his mission. Now I believe we get a glimpse of how we, how we have overcome the world in Revelation 12, verse 9 to 11. Listen to this. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives unto death. The way that we overcome the fox in our lives, the the fox that's trying to distract us from God and his plan for our lives, is through the blood of the lamb, through Jesus' work on the cross for you, for your sins. He is the one who paid the perfect price for you. He is the one who came and he became sin for us on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. And through the word of our testimony, in other words, we overcome the enemy through what we tell people. How we testify about Jesus. That is our our weapon that is given to us there. And so that concludes that first point of the fox. Fox. How we see that fox active in a world of today. How he tries to distract us, but how we can, just like Jesus, with the authority that he has given us, that we can rebuke the works of the enemy in our lives. Which leads us then to the second point here this morning, the hen. The hen. Now we read here, Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem. So he's grieving, he's mourning. And he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? So he's he's basically mourning for Israel, mourning for Jerusalem. And he says that, listen, I'm going to stay en route to Jerusalem because a true prophet cannot die outside or perish outside of Jerusalem. You see, the nation of Israel had a history of persecuting and killing the prophets that were sent by God in the Old Testament. And they were sent by God for that very purpose, to call them back to him, to call them back to to repent. All prophets weren't necessarily killed in Jerusalem. So when Jesus says this, he's using the irony of this statement in the following way Jerusalem was the center of Israel's worship. It was the place where the temple of God was. It was where the Israelites had to travel to for their festivals that they had to celebrate. They had to travel there for the Passover. But most of all, it wasn't just the center of worship for Israel. But it would become the center of worship for the Gentiles too. Because listen, from the start it was God's heart that through the nation of Israel the whole world might know. God made provision for Gentiles to come and hear His word. Through His temple there was a specific section called the court of the Gentiles. And in that place Gentiles could come in and they could hear the the word of God spoken they could start approaching the God of the Bible in that way. Similar to almost what we have here. We've maybe got a quarter of the Gentiles up there in front. It's like the coffee shop, right? Like people can come in, maybe hear the Sunday morning, and they listen some, and they hear something about, oh God, and almost like that. But that is what Jerusalem was supposed to be. And so it is ironic that that is what God's plan was, but they were still rejecting God. Now, the question is, why was Jesus set on Jerusalem? Well, he knew that in order for the world's sins to be forgiven, he had to be sacrificed as the Passover lamb. And during that specific time, Gentiles and Jews from the dispersion, from the bordering countries and from the rest of the world, would be there as well to come and participate in the Passover. And from there, the good news would travel, not just through the disciples only, but through those Jews that were going to go back to their countries. That was his, his heart. So God's plan from the start with Jesus was the same as he had had with Israel when they were saved out of Egypt with the first Passover. Look at this, Exodus 12, verse 38. The context is, of course, you've got the nation of Israel for 400 years. They are slaves in Egypt. They are oppressed. God raises up a leader, Moses, to deliver them out of Egypt. And so what happens after God performs miracle after miracle and, and sends the, the different plagues? It says a mixed multitude Of non-Israelites from foreign nations also went with Israel, went with them along with the flocks and herds and a very large number of livestock. When Israel had to pack up and go, when Pharaoh said, Okay, enough. I have seen God is delivering you. You need to leave. Israel packed up, but together with them, other nations also went because they saw what God was doing. So they joined in with God's family. So at the first Passover, you've got Gentiles that are coming into God's plan already. And so God's plan with Jesus is exactly the same. Exactly the same. Now, what does that look like? What is the picture that Jesus gives us about that? I've got a little video there that I'm going to put up for you about, you know, Jesus says how... He wanted to gather Israel like a hen, gathers her brood, her chicks. I'm just going to play a short clip here. I'm sure if we can hit the lights there quickly, Jeff. We see your baby. You can hear her beeping. Yeah. Now you can see she's lost feathers. They get in pretty bad condition being broody for a while. Okay. He gives us this picture as a hen gathers her chicks. Now oh, there was a little bit later on in that clip. You can see. Um, I didn't have the right clip there, but there is a a video and a little picture of, of where there is a hen, and there are like maybe a dozen, two dozen of chicks under the wings of one of the hens. But a hen doesn't just stay in one place and do nothing. The hen gathers the chicks, protects them, nurtures them. And so it's interesting how Jesus uses this picture to say, how often I've wanted to do this with you, Israel. How often have I wanted to gather you under my wings, but not just gather you to come and sit and, and feel nice and comfortable. I'm here to protect you. I'm here to, to make you safe. And that is the picture God gives to us this morning about who he is. That is his heart. That's his heart, not just for Israel, but for us. And so many of us have got the wrong perception and idea about God in our minds because we have been fooled by the enemy to think he's out to get us. He's just, we can't trust him. He's not good. And the question to all of us this morning is, you know, have we come to the fold of God? Have you come to that fold of God where he is like hand and he's gathered you in? Because that is his desire, as we had saw, uh, seen there. And he wants to protect you from the enemy. Jesus promised that no one will snatch us out of his hands when we commit to him. And then, if you have made the decision, are we on God's plan? Like, are we on his mission? Do we realize that that is his desire for us? That is not just saved us so that we're happy and now we can live until one day that he returns or we die. But he's actually got a plan for us. And the question is, how do we get on that mission? You know, if, if you're here at The Rock, it's, it's not difficult to get on God's mission here. God's mission is to go and make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We have 40 plus kids upstairs that are part of Kids Rock. It's a place we can make disciples. If you haven't been baptized yet, become a disciple. Be obedient to what Jesus calls you to do. If you have not become a member of this church yet, why not? What is stopping you from making that commitment? God has a plan for you. He has a mission. But for as long as we make excuses with these things and, and we don't see Him as the hen who's trying to gather us in, we are not on God's mission. And so that is the hen. So the fox who's trying to distract us with all these fears. We have the hen who's trying to gather us, gather us in, not just us, the people outside of these doors. And now my last point and conclusive point is the desolate house. It's the house of ruins. Jesus says, behold, your house is forsaken. And yet I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus told them their house was forsaken. It was desolate in ruins. What did he mean by that? We know the people of Israel, and specifically the religious leaders, started trusting more in what they were doing, their laws that they were keeping, their rituals, their sacrificial system. They were trusting in those things and in the temple of God rather than God. They were missing God's heart. Glenn had mentioned last week, they were neglecting the sojourners. They were neglecting the orphans, the widows, those that were the lowest of the low in the community. And so basically Jesus is telling them their worship has become empty. There's no life in it. It's worthless. And that caused their house to be desolate. Everything that they were building their security on was going to fall to the ground because 37 years after Jesus' crucifixion, his death, his resurrection and ascension, we know that Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple of God was destroyed. It was plundered. And so Jesus gave them this warning, but he does give a promise. He says, listen, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a mysterious promise that he gives to the people of Israel And it's pointing towards a future time before his second coming that many, many Israelites will in fact believe in the Messiah. And as we're carrying through in this time, many Jewish people are coming to faith in Jesus. But I believe it's something to us as well that we will not see Jesus. You will not see Jesus for who he truly is until you start, take that step in faith and trust him. And you confess with your mouth that He is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God had raised Him from the dead. We are just like Jerusalem. We are just like the nation of Israel in the fact that our nature is to reject God. Our nature is to look at everything around us here in Squamish, to look at the mountains, to look at the ocean, to look at the nature and say, wow, this is all just by chance. Romans 1 says that, we suppress the truth. Even though we know God through what we can see, the heavens, the stars, everything, we suppress the truth. So we're just like them. The question is, what is what is your house and temple here in Squamish? What is it that, like the nation of Israel, you run to for your comfort, you run to for your enjoyment and fulfillment, way more than Jesus? Way more than than the fulfillment that you can get from his presence. Because that is the thing that I want to submit to you, that Jesus is talking about here, the same house that he's referring to for Israel. It's desolate. It's in ruins. So I want to conclude with this. God grieves over you, He grieves over us, because of sins and things that we do, that we feel this is going to give me fulfillment over and above what God can promise me and give to me. He grieves about that. He laments the same way as He was lamenting over Israel. If you're a child of God, if you have given your life to Jesus and to follow Him, the picture that Jesus gives us here today is a picture of He is the hen that wants to gather in, the hen like God who wants to keep you under His wings, under His protection. And He is calling us back. So it might be that you're sitting here, And you have been ticking off the boxes. You have just been going through the boxes. You've you've done the things that you think like, okay, this is maybe what a good Christian does. But the question is, do you really and truly know and love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And is He your delight? Because He's calling you back. If you have not made that decision yet to trust Jesus with your whole life, And to repent of your sin, to say, Jesus, forgive me for how I've lived life my way and not according to your way. And I acknowledge you as my Lord and Savior. And if you have not invited him to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and to make your heart his dwelling place, this is your opportunity to do that today because he is that same God. He wants to include you in his fold. He wants to bring you in. And so as we move into communion this morning, let us reflect on that. Let us in this time now maybe ask God this question and trust that his spirit is going to reveal this to you. That we close our eyes as the the band starts playing. And we ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us, what is the temple, the shrine that perhaps we run to instead of Jesus? What is the thing that we run to? And trust that He will reveal that to you. But know that when He shows you that, know that it is in ruins. It is desolate. And He wants you to repent of it and He wants you to follow Him. And so we also know that the Bible teaches us with communion that communion is exclusively for us if we have received God's grace and forgiveness for our sins. If we have acknowledged Jesus as Lord and Savior and we are His children, that is for us. If you have not done that, let communion pass by you. You don't have to participate in that. But it is your opportunity to actually become part of God's family and in fact participate this morning. So yeah, if, um, if the ushers perhaps can, or the elders that serve communion can come to the front and uh, the band. And uh, I will lead us in prayer before we take communion. Let's pray.